Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get going, I just want to say thanks again to everybody for your hard work this year and for listening. And I hope that everybody gets a chance to spend time with friends and family and take a little bit of time to reflect on what we were able to accomplish this year and what we have to get done in the coming two years. I know that we'll do it together and I cannot say thank you enough. And now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by multi-Emmy winning filmmaker, Melissa Jo Peltier. She's the writer and director of the award-winning documentary, The Game Is Up, Disillusioned Trump Voters Tell Their Stories, which studies how hardcore Trump voters turned away from the MAGA cult in 2020. And it's now available to stream on Amazon Prime. Today, she's coming to us from just north of New York City. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm happy to be here. So you, over the course of your career, have not only been incredibly successful, but also have covered a lot of diverse topics in a variety of media, both documentary and fiction and all that, including Cesar Milan, The Famed Dog Whisperer, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and documentaries that, again, sort of run the gamut of subject matter. So tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea of making The Game Is Up and how you started the sort of creative process of finding these folks. Sure. Well, like so many people, I was watching helplessly. You know, I was donating money and I was running my mouth off on Twitter, but I wanted to do something in this time of crisis that we're all in. And I wanted to be able to just use my 30 years of road skills. And I watched on Twitter, I watched in real time as Joe Walsh changed his mind about Trump. And it was fascinating to watch it in real time. It happened over about a year and a half. And that's when I first came up with the idea, but I really didn't know how I was going to make it. And I didn't have any money. I, I can do anything in this business except raise money. That's the one thing I don't, I'm terrible at. So I let it go, let it go. And then after the first impeachment trial, I didn't expect him to get impeached, but I didn't expect the Republicans to be acting like schoolboys throwing spitballs in the impeachment trial. It was really upsetting to me. And I thought, you know, if he gets reelected and I don't do this, even if this doesn't make a difference, I have to do it. So Mary Carrie Craven, who is our producer, who's wonderful, she was the one who sort of convinced me. She sort of said, build it and they will come. And we did raise some money for it. And then the rest sort of came from me and my husband. But it had to be done. It was ride or die. And that's sort of how it got started. But yeah, I was actually inspired by watching Joe change in real time. And so Joe Walsh, a friend of the show, was elected to Congress in 2010 as the Tea Partiest of the Tea Party member of that wave. The story goes back through and his story goes back through, you know, the things that he would say in office. He only served a term. Then he switched into sort of the right wing media ecosystem, at which point, you know, you're all in with Trump or you're you're out. And certainly we learned that we weren't with Trump and we were out and which we're happy to be. And, you know, there's a part in the movie where Joe says, is this really how I sound? 
Is this really what I sound like? And he ends up, and I remember this, running for president in 2020 against Donald Trump. Now, a brave endeavor, but one that, you know, is tilting at an awfully big orange windmill, too. Yes, absolutely. That's a good way to put it. I don't think Joe really felt like he was going to win. I think he felt like symbolically you had to have Republicans saying the things that, you know, because it's so easy for Republicans to write off Democrats. And, you know, I'm a pretty liberal person and I don't think anyone really cared what I had to say about Trump. But I, I really felt like what I was hearing on Twitter from people like you and Rick Wilson, and you had really good arguments against Trump that would appeal to moderates and Republicans. And I thought, you know, these are the better arguments to me. The liberal arguments tend to go off the deep end and they tend to sound partisan. And I just felt that just ordinary people who are Republicans who were telling why Trump was such a disaster might have an effect and might give other people like them permission to change their mind. Because, you know, you're in circles of Republicans, you're in circles of, you know, red states, You're not talking to anybody with another point of view. And even if you look at Trump by yourself and you see something and you go, this really makes me sick. You can't say that in your circle. Even if everybody in your circle is thinking the same thing, nobody wants to say it because they don't want to lose the cohesiveness of the cult or the group. So I just felt like maybe they could see people doing that. And in the film, Bacha Goldberg, the second story, she says that Joe inspired her which I thought was really interesting. I didn't know that when we first got her as a story. This is part of the thing. I mean, you know, I think that the Trump piece has taken on a cult-like movement. I mean, look, let me be clear. As the listeners have heard, the Republican Party has always been far more hierarchical than the Democratic Party. Republicans, even when I was there, right, everybody got in line. The president said something. Everybody agreed with it. It took on a whole new noxious, dangerous level with Trump. But the other part, too, was what you talked about, which I don't know if conspiracy of silence is the right way to put it, but which is if you don't like Trump, you damn well better say nothing. And you hear Joe say that, too. He goes out, you know, his radio show basically gets scuttled. Now the death threats start. Right. And so he is someone who you said becomes a symbol, right? The embodiment of somebody who said, look, I'm a conservative person, but this guy isn't conservative. These aren't conservative values. I'm not going to stand for this. In fact, I'm going to stand up against it. But take us through the the balance. So you, the second story, as you mentioned, is a young woman. And she's like, well, yeah, you know, Trump's there and he's the guy I want to like. Oh, yeah. And she went very deep into Trump. I mean, she wasn't voting because she was then she was 17. But she had been working for the Republican Party and making money at it for quite a while since she was like 16 years old, 15 years old. She was kind of a rising star in the New York Republican Party and certainly in Brooklyn. I mean, she started the Brooklyn Young Republican Club and she went to all those events with, you know, Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk and everything. And she was so into that. And she was really had a great future if that's what she had wanted to continue to do. And she went to Trump rallies and she really didn't want to see anything except what she had chosen to see. And then she's from a Jewish family. And when Charlottesville happened. And he made that comment about, you know, very fine people on both sides. That really hit her because her parents, as it turns out, were refuseniks from Russia. And they had lived under totalitarian control and they had told her what it was like. And once that little crack happened, when he said that, that sort of opened the floodgates for her seeing him in a different light. And I think that happens a lot in cults. You know, it's like you just have to get that first crack of doubt in. And then 
if that doesn't shut, if you don't shut that down, usually the truth begins to work its way through. The truth is a very persistent thing. Well, and that's the cognitive dissonance that we talk about, too, with authoritarian regimes, which is for this young woman, it was the torches, the guys in the khaki pants, the Jews will not replace us. And she's sort of shocked. And then her hero doesn't decry it, goes along with it. But as you went through these subjects, was there always that aha moment for them where they were like on this one day, sort of to your point, like the clouds parted, the sun shone and everything was suddenly clear? Or was it for some of them more of a it was additive, right? They just got ground down. They got ground down. They got ground down. There was a line at which even now they couldn't cross. I honestly think that, and you know, we're all human and we react to things that affect us personally. And most Americans, I mean, I, I have to tell you, you know, I know a lot of liberal people who don't really even get the peril we're in right now. Very smart liberal people, but they're very busy and they work in fields like the one that I worked in. And, you know, you're all consumed with work. You work day in and day out, all the people you see are in work. So, you know, you're following the news, but you're not in it. And I feel like the fact that they saw something, each of them saw something that affected them personally, that hit them personally. I think Joe was more of a gradual, although his turning point really was Helsinki. That was his like, I'm going on the radio, I'm going to tell the world. But hey, it started changing before that. And that was why I found it so fascinating to watch, you know, woke Joe Walsh. Because I consider Joe a good friend and I love him and I love his wife. And we have very different views on a bunch of things. But, you know, when it comes down to the bottom line, we like democracy. We like, you know, fair elections. We like sort of the basic stuff that's in the Constitution that Trump is very much against. And I think Trumpism, which is, you know, a whole nother thing. It's not over with Trump. Before we spend a little more time on the film, because I, I do want to do that, I want to talk about your colleagues, your friends, and you talk about everybody being busy. First of all, Americans, compared to the rest of the world, probably, we always work more hours, longer. We're always more consumed with work than everybody else, right? Being busy is true, but it's also like, I'm busy. I know that's out there. Is it willful or is it I don't want to criticize because I, I think you're right when people say they're busy, but just like you talk about the circles in a very red state, the circles that you are in, like, is it all I'm too busy or is it I know it's out there, but if I look at it, I got to face it? I have to tell you, I think my husband is kind of like that. I mean, he's involved and he's smart, but it really hurts him to see what's happening. You know, he's passionate about his work and he gets really deep into it. So that is like his way out of looking too closely at it. And you know, like we'll be out and he'll say, you know, Melissa, no politics at dinner. <laughs> so it's not that he doesn't care. It's just that it hurts. And I think it hurts a lot of people to see this on both sides. And again, you know, that's why I wanted to have a film that would allow people to look at things and to look at things in a non-threatening way, because I, I don't think these stories are threatening. We had a lot of trouble getting distribution. And the reason was, oh, this film is too political which I thought was crazy because, you know, Nancy Pelosi's film is going to be on HBO. <laughs> but, you know, they wouldn't come near us, like maybe because Trump was in the title. I don't know. It's interesting. And I'll tell you this, and I'm sorry to the listeners. My New Year's resolution will be not to say this, which is they don't want to confront it for a couple of reasons. One, because it makes it real. But two, because what if we do it and God forbid he gets back in and now we're on that list and it's just easier to stay out of it altogether then provoke the ire of these people who we know. These are people who threaten people's lives. They're people who kill people. They're people who brandish AR-15s. Violence is sometimes an actual weapon and oftentimes an implicit weapon. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you feel that way too. I mean, all you Lincoln Project guys, you put yourself out there. And once you did that, you realize when you're taking a risk, taking a huge risk. And I'm sure you're on the list. I'm probably lower on the list, but I'm on the list now. Believe me, they'll get to all of us. Don't you worry. Exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) But for me, it was like, because when I was living in LA and I was super into my career at the time, I would have been a lot more careful. I never really used Twitter for politics. It was like a big week if I tweeted about the Man Booker Prize or something, you know. But I think what happened to me was you hit a certain age, you see something happening and you think, if not now, when? And if there is anything to stand up for, this is it. And my family on my mom's side is Mayflower and fought in every single war America's ever had. And my dad was in World War II and his brothers were in World War II. And, you know, it wasn't a question of, gee, I'm scared for me. But I understand that people feel that way. I do. I mean, the problem is, I think, and if you look at the Republican Congress, you see what happens when that happens across the board. I really thought Joe Walsh would be the canary in the coal mine. I thought he was going to be like, oh, they're all going to be like Joe. They're all going to see it. And Joe told me they saw it, but they weren't going to come out and say it. I mean, listen, do you think that Kevin McCarthy has anything but disdain for Trump? No. And he probably tells his closest confidence that and everybody else. But you know what? Like. He made the deal with the devil, and now he's dancing with him, and he's going to dance with him until the devil eats him. This is what I don't understand about these guys. I'm assuming to get elected to Congress, well, not anymore, I guess, but you know, you should know a little bit of history, American history and world history. And autocrats and dictators, they don't spare you out of loyalty. If you're not useful to them, you're gone too. If you make a little error, you're gone too. And the people closest are usually punished the hardest. It's like you guys, Lincoln Project guys, because you're apostates, you're criticized more harshly than I am because I already started as a liberal. It's interesting, though, because in that particular construct of like who would they come for first, we're actually probably second because the McCarthy's of the world will be purged first because they have demonstrated repeatedly their unworthiness and lack of purity. Right. Even if he's willing to do everything, they're like, but why take the chance? There's somebody else. So it's those people who they consider insufficiently loyal or pure inside the movement, right? Those go first, then they'll go to the next people. Oh, yeah, that's true of cults, too, because they're more threatening because they've seen how the sausage is made. Yeah, the apostates always go first. Look at Stalin. I mean, Stalin is like the test case of all the purging of your best friends. And that's what I I don't understand why all these guys just jumped on this bandwagon, not looking at history at all. Well, authoritarian movements must live in the present, right? There is no past. There is no future. They must live in the now because history serves as a warning, like different time, different circumstances. We're headed on the same railroad, right? We got here from different ways, but it's all leading to the same place. They don't want you to remember that. And they also can't talk about the future because frankly, that means they might have to make promises that they're not going to keep. Like, why is the Republican Congress going to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop? Because what policy issue will they possibly put forth that would have any level of seriousness? And the only thing that they're willing to say that they would do from a purely governmental perspective is maybe we won't raise the debt ceiling unless we get these cuts to Social Security and Medicare, which is really just inducing chaos. And they know that because it delegitimizes the entire system. And so like, maybe they come to it by accident, maybe they've got it figured out, but they all get there. It makes me so sad. And I think I was pretty naive before Trump in some ways, because 
being in the media and entertainment for a long time, I'd sort of seen this movement happening for a while, but I didn't think it would get here. I always felt like the same people like you guys would pull everybody back. The institutions would pull everybody back. And, you know, as Chris Gibb, the farmer in our thing says, boy, was I wrong. That didn't stop it. And that's really interesting to me because, you know, you can compare this to Germany or, or Russia or whatever. They didn't have the institutions that were backstopped and created specifically to prevent stuff like this. And they all failed. Well, they didn't fail because we're still here. They didn't fail yet. And I hope they don't. But you take Germany, for example, though, and we saw it happen with Trump the first time and we're starting to see it happen again with Trump and his various acolytes, which is, first of all, we're a 50-50 country, Alyssa, right? And I think we should never forget that. Election Day 2022 was a good day for democracy. It bought us time and space. And it was a win in that it wasn't a devastating loss. We held on to some key things in key places. But more Republicans voted than Democrats. Think about it. In 2016, Donald Trump gets 61 million votes. In 2020, he gets 75 million. Now, thank God, Joe Biden got 81. But 14 million more Americans, after four years of that insanity, said, I'd rather have more of that than Uncle Joe over here, who maybe isn't my favorite flavor of ice cream, but is it nuts? And so it was an ad hoc coalition in 20 that got Biden elected. It was a pro-democracy coalition in 22 that did what we did. It will have to be bigger, better, better organized, better funded, everything else as we go into 2024. But I want to get back to this permission structure, because that's one thing we talked a lot about in early 20, right as we launched the Lincoln Project, is what are we going to say to people who are lifelong Republicans who voted for Trump? That's the other thing, too, I'd be interested after I, I finish this is nobody wants to say they made the wrong decision. Right. And nobody says they want to say, not only did I make the wrong decision, but God was I wrong. Like there are very few Joe Walsh's. You said there'd be more, but there's very few who go, oh, my God, what the hell did I do? But how did you see these folks come to that? Because, you know, again, conservatives tend to be more hierarchical. Was it just a Joe Walsh? Was it just, you know, this stuff with agriculture where it was bananas like this is clearly not good for us? I don't understand why anybody doesn't understand that. Like, What did you see there? Each one of the people that we interviewed are people who had definitely had an ethical framework that they worked from. But I think that, like you said, each of you came to it individually. And this sounds crazy, but I was just reading some Carl Jung <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> I was just looking for some Carl Jung quotes. And he said something about how the wisdom of the crowd will never be real wisdom. Your internal truth is the real wisdom. And that is something that most people don't get or they don't trust their internal truth, or they don't know where to start with it. And I do think that there's a lot of distraction, you know, flood the zone with shit kind of stuff. And everything that's going on right now, all the disinformation, division, all of that is playing into people's confusion and it's blocking them. Like in cults, Steve Hassan says, when you're in a cult, you completely lose your old identity, but it's still there, but you bury it. It's there. You are a person. You are something, you know, you're born as a certain way. You're raised a certain way. You are that person. But then in a cult, you're completely different. I mean, he hated Nixon. He was a liberal in college. He like fasted and prayed for Nixon <laughs> when he was in that cult. But what happens is that identity confuses you and you don't know what your real identity is. And I think a lot of people have trouble coming out of cults because they'd never developed a sense of identity. And I think Americans, especially Americans, we're very addicted to normalcy. We want to normalize everything. 
And we want to say it's all going to bounce. But that's what I kept hearing from really smart liberals. Look, you know, it's always like this. It's going to come back around. Well, yeah, it usually does. I mean, that's why if a Republican wins a presidency, I'm not going to jump off a roof, you know, <laughs> even if I don't agree with anything about them, because we have institutions. And once they get into office, they follow a certain pattern. And that's what we expect. And this is the first time that that has just, you know, been blown out of the water. And, you know, Trump had no interest in any of it, any of it, any of the history. He had no interest in, you know, what America is about. He has only interested himself. And what he did was I think he allowed those elements in the Republican Party to just say, hey, it's only about power. It's not about anything else. Right. So let's talk about your subjects in the aftermath of your film being produced and ultimately released. Have they received blowback from friends, family, employers? The last segment is on evangelicals, and we have a number of them. And we profiled Nathan Munson, who was a Liberty University student. It was his first election and basically was told from the pulpit, vote for Trump. Ditto the couple, Ron and Cindy Hawthorne. Cindy had grown up evangelical. Everything about her was evangelical. And ironically, and we don't say this in the film, she actually didn't vote for Trump. She quietly didn't vote for Trump. She didn't tell anybody because everybody wanted her to vote for Trump. And I think she kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nudge. Yeah, sure. I vote for Trump. But she didn't because she had a bad feeling about him. Her husband had only been a Christian for four years and he went to his pastor to say, who should I vote for? And it was against everything he believed and knew in his gut. But he did that because, again, talked about hierarchy. I mean, evangelicalism is extremely hierarchical. Churches, most religions are. And that person in the cassock or whatever they're in, <laughs> I don't know what evangelical minister they are, they are next to God in that theology. So, of course, you're going to do what they tell you, even if everything in your body, every cell is screaming, don't do it. So they actually, Cindy and Ron, left their church. The last time I saw them, I saw them at the Ocean City Film Festival. They had left their church and they were doing this sort of online worship thing with like-minded evangelicals who had left because of Trump. And it's not insignificant that evangelicals have left because of Trump, because they have. And, you know, all those little things matter, I think, in terms of the margins and elections. Well, and the sense I get is that, you know, I'm hoping that the folks that you profile in your film are the tip of the iceberg. My fear, though, is that like cults, this movement buys in bulk and it sells one at a time. Once somebody's inside that bubble, it's hard to get them back out. Very true. That's a great way to put it. And in terms of, is it the tip of the iceberg? We did talk to a lot of people that weren't in our film and we had people cancel on us because they just, they didn't feel like they could say it out loud. It's different to talk to somebody on the phone for an hour and say, yeah, I, I, I want to talk about this and then say, oh, I'm going to be on a film and my family's going to see it. So before we wrap up, where can folks find your film? The best place to find it, in my opinion, is Amazon because it's $3.99, I think, to rent or $4.99. No commercials there. It's in you know, beautiful, high definition, 4K, and you can leave us a nice review. It's also on YouTube, on our distributor's YouTube channel, which is Indie Rights, and that has commercials in it, and also Tubi. A lot of people have Tubi, and Tubi has commercials, but it's available there too. So those two are free if you, you know, don't mind ads. All right. And what else are you working on right now? My husband and I make a lot of short films, 
and we just finished one and that we made in LA, the short horror. And so we do the festival circuit with that. It's like our eighth or ninth short film. And I have another couple documentaries that are totally unpolitical that I'm talking to people about. So that's pretty much it. And where can our listeners find you online? Well, I was kicked off Twitter for a while, but I'm back for now uh, at Melissa J. Peltier. And then on Mastodon, I'm also that. I'm Melissa Joe Peltier at tooting.ch. Then also everywhere else, Instagram, those places. Perfect. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Melissa, thanks for joining me today. And everybody else, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.